0: Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of God. And again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, "Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." For our New Testament reading and our scripture pa- or our sermon passage comes from Luke chapter 1. Luke 1 verses 26 through 26. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this marvelous story of an ordinary girl. We thank you of the truth of your gospel that was proclaimed to her and that we delight in and partake of. Lord, I pray that your gospel would be proclaimed this morning, that you would be honored and glorified, and that we would be comforted by what you have done for us uh, in history and for us even today. We love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. They were just so all-around awful, you could hardly believe they were real. Ralph, Imogene, Leroy, Claude, Ollie, and Gladys. Six skinny, stringy-haired kids, all alike except for being different sizes and having different black and blue places where they had clonked each other. They were absolutely the worst kids in the history of the world. They lied and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls. And talked dirty and hit little kids and cussed their teachers and took the name of the Lord in vain and set fire to Fred Shoemaker's old broken-down tool house. Such was the description of the Herdman children in Barbara Robinson's classic novel, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. And if you have not read it, I highly recommend it for this Christmas season. The story goes that these ruffians decided that they could get some free food by going to Sunday school and then volunteering to be the lead roles in the church's annual Christmas pageant, much to the fear and chagrin and, dare I say, horror of the good kids who had grown up in the church and who held their roles for years. The story revolves around the often hysterical situation of unchurched kids who are not familiar with the Christmas story encountering it and asking questions that the regulars would never even think to have asked. They had a completely fresh understanding of the story that was unencumbered with the Christianese that we so often become ensnared by. Again, from the book, when they got to the part about swaddling cloths and the manger, Imogene asked, You mean they tied him up and put him in a feeding box? Where was the child welfare? And again, Imogene said, Oil? What kind of a cheap king hands out oil for a present? You get better presence from the firemen. I bring this novel up because this morning we will be looking at a text that is so familiar to us, especially at this time of year. You have undoubtedly heard sermons preached on this text. You have heard songs sung from this text. You have probably read devotionals written about this text. Luke 1 is an oh-so-familiar passage to us. And this morning I pray that we might hear afresh the promise of the gospel given to a girl from Nazareth, and in so doing, delight in the gospel given to us. With this in mind, let's tell an old story new. Look with me at verse 26. Luke begins this passage. and In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. Now keep in mind this is about half a year between verses 25 and 26. In verses 25, it's the conclusion of the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth who are who are promised a child, and, and Zechariah's unbelief that would ultimately lead to a consequence to discipline from the angel and from the Lord, about six months has passed since that time. And the same angel, Gabriel, has been dispatched again from heaven to deliver a message of hope. Imagine with me the scene of this angel's commission. Picture the throne room of God where he is seated high and lofty upon the throne. Seraphim surrounding him, praising him day and night, proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And God summons Gabriel to his courts, who joyfully comes, eager to do the bidding of his gracious and beloved king. The messenger approaches and receives his mission to deliver a most important message. The last time this happened, he was sent to Zechariah to tell him of the birth of the most important prophet the world had ever seen. What would the task be now? When Gabriel heard the details of his next mission, perhaps he was stunned. Six months earlier, he went to the very heart of the worship of God, to the temple in Jerusalem to speak with a priest in the midst of his service, that royal city of David. Perhaps expecting to go back to this holy Mount Zion, he he may have been perplexed to hear this new destination. For you see, God sent him to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now Nazareth was no Jerusalem Indeed, it was a backwater, a place of the poorest of the poor, a place more akin to Mound House outside of Carson City, a place known for debauchery and poverty than the mansions of Lake Tahoe. It was more like Skid Row than a holy place. One could rightfully describe it as the armpit of Israel. On top of this, he was sent, in verse 27, to a virgin. Not to a priest, not to a king, not a learned scholar, but to a young girl of about 13 to 14 years old, we think. He was sent to a teenager who happened to be engaged, for she was, as Luke tells us, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. This was just a common man with a common name from a common town. There was truly nothing special. We learn from other parts of Scripture that Joseph was a carpenter. Now, it may have been that when you heard me say that Joseph was a carpenter, the idea of a craftsman may have popped into your head. But no, Joseph was not like our craftsman. A carpenter of this time was more like a skill, semi-skilled laborer. He hoisted large beams to hold up roofs. He hauled around framing timbers and secured them in place. Think framer, not maker. Think laborer, not craftsman. This was no craftsman, but a poor laborer who worked with his rough hands in a rough town. In this time, the betrothal was similar to an engagement, but there was more involved and, and it was more binding upon the couple. They were, not yet, they were engaged, but not married. The relationship was committed, but not consummated. And Luke tells us the virgin's name was Mary. Mary. I don't want to speculate too much about what Gabriel was thinking when he received this mission and the surprise that he may or may not have had, but this we know. Gabriel has a very different task to complete this time around from the last one. Zechariah was an old man. Mary was a young girl. Zechariah was a learned priest. Mary was uneducated. Zechariah was in the holy city of Jerusalem. Mary was in a fourth world town of Nazareth. Zechariah was wealthy while Mary was destitute and poor. And yet, as we will see, where Zechariah doubted, Mary trusted. Zechariah demanded proof, but Mary submitted to the words that the angel spoke. And so Gabriel went. And now we come to the first part of our conversation, of our tale this morning. We see here the the first address, the the angel's address, and, and Mary's reaction. The angel comes to her, verse 28, and he came to her. Off goes Gabriel to Nazareth to complete his mission for his maker. He finds the girl. Perhaps she was outside working or cooking, or perhaps she was inside. Perhaps it was dark or daytime, we are not sure, but he finds her. He appears to her. And imagine the surprise when out of nowhere a frightening sight invades dear little Mary's world. A terror appears to her. Where she was tending to her daily chores, wham, an angel appears. A figure appears before her, holy, mighty, and terrible, and he speaks these words. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The angel offers the friendliest greeting he possibly could have given to her. The first phrase was a common greeting, nothing special, like a a hello to us. Then Gabriel calls her the one who has had favor. That is, Mary found favor with God in the past, and the results of that continue into the present time when the angel was speaking to her. Put another way, we could loosely translate it as, Mary, God has given favor to you and will work mightily through you. Sadly, this greeting of the angel has been twisted because of a bad translation in the Latin Bible called the Vulgate. The Vulgate translates this verse as, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. They then ascribe good works to Mary, and they say that Mary herself can help sinners. They say that God is stingy, Jesus is nice, but Mary is the true source of goodness. Ask anything of her, and she will get it because Jesus can't refuse his mother. Mary would turn over in her grave if she heard such nonsense. Gabriel specifically says that Mary, by no action of her own because it's a passive verb, by the way has found favor with God, not by merit but by grace. We see here the gospel in its its truest form. We see an angel sent to Mary, and the angel tells her that God has looked kindly upon her, not for anything in and of herself, but because God has chosen and God has decided to set his affections upon her and to delight in her and to lavish grace upon grace upon her. Gabriel finishes this greeting by assuring this girl that God himself is with her and will work in her, literally, and through her. Verse 29 is Mary's response, but but she was greatly troubled at the saying. She was upset. She She was perplexed. She was confused. She was distressed. As we will see, this girl was anything but a fool. She may not have been educated in the rabbinical schools, but she knew her Old Testament very, very well. She heard and saw the angels appearing, and it confused her. But where some of us would stay in this perplexed state, never moving beyond confusion, she did move from it. And Luke tells us she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She weighed what she was hearing. She was testing what she heard. It's interesting, isn't it, that Luke frames this verse with two verbs that have the same prefix on them. To give us some sort of sense in the English what he's saying in the Greek, it's like Luke was saying that Mary was troubled but testing, or was concerned and questioning, or or was disturbed and discussing in her mind, or, or was distressed and discerning what this all meant this young girl began to actually test the angel of God. Others fell down in fear, but she stood in confidence, questioning whether this truly was the truth that God would have for her. Others worshipped the angels falsely, but she challenged him. Others run away in fear, but she tested the spirit to see that he was indeed from God. I cannot help but wonder if years later, decades later, when the Apostle John, who was given charge of Jesus' mother Mary, if, if this discussion took place and, and it impacted him so that he would write in First John chapter four First uh, John chapter four, verse one. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into this world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already." I wonder if the Apostle John was sitting around the dinner table or the ancient Near Eastern equivalent thereof talking with Mary about this appearing of Gabriel and discern that she tested this spirit to see if he was truly from God. How many of you would act like this if an angel of God appeared to you? I honestly don't think that I would. I can readily admit that I would be more akin to these shepherds who just trusted it and believed it and ran to go see what the angel had had spoken but ain't but Mary this teenage girl questions this angel and discerns she doesn't believe it just because an angel says it in response to this testing we can see the angel's assurance and Mary's request in this the second part of this conversation In verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. The angel comforts her. He bids her take comfort. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be terrified. In some very small sense, this angel is fulfilling the words given to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 30, Comfort, comfort my people. He brings comfort to Mary. Do not fear. Do not be afraid, do not be terrified, for you have found favor with God. This phrase, that found favor with God, is a common phrase in the Old Testament. We see in Genesis 6-8 that Noah found favor with God. In Genesis 18-3 that Abraham found favor with God. Even Lot, that refugee from Sodom and Gomorrah, found favor with God in Genesis 19-19. We also see that Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Gideon, and David found favor with God. And so it should not surprise us that yet another very, very important person in redemptive history has found favor with God. This young Bible scholar who most certainly have heard that wondrous Old Testament formula in the angel's words. This must have brought true comfort to this discerning girl. And humility put on par with these giants of the faith. Having given comfort, the angel now gives his message. He says, and behold, behold, we skip over this word too quickly. Behold, you may not believe it, but it is true. An equivalent of truly, truly, I say to you, you will not believe this on first blush, but it is indeed true. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God will do the impossible with Mary. She has nothing to do with this except that she gives birth, gives his name. God would do all the rest. This name that she was to give her child was a most common name. In the, it is the Greek version of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. Listen to the description of this child that the angel gives to his mother. He will be great. This little baby would not be relegated to obscurity. God could never do that. The father desires that his son be glorified. He will be well known in the world. Though meek and lowly in an infant's body, this one would be great among men. Indeed, he would become the greatest, or was the greatest of men. He will be great And he will be called the Son of the Most High. People will know him as the begotten Son of God. He will perfectly image his Father. He will represent his Father on earth. He will be worshipped as the Father is worshipped, such that when one sees Christ, they see the Father. And when they know Christ, they know the Father. Indeed, when they are loved by Christ, they are loved by the Father. This one is divine. But the angel doesn't stop there. He continues, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. As a descendant of the great king David, this little child would one day reign in that same dynasty. He will rule over the nations. He will be an earthly king that would be known and respected by all other kings, just like David was. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He will also be a spiritual king, one who would rule over the very people of God. And his reign over them will never, ever, ever end. And of his kingdom, there will be no end, concludes the angel. There will not be any rebellion. There will be no coup against his authority. His kingdom will never cease to exist. This all was a wonderful message, and, and it would have rung a bell in mary 's mind. She, she would have heard echoes of this very message throughout the pages of scripture, because this is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to her great 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 grandfather David in second Samuel verse seven or chapter seven second Samuel seven, we see the Davidic covenant, the promise given to David. This child will be the promised son of David promised a thousand years prior. This was the fulfillment of this covenant. We, we read in First Chronicles, a parallel passage, First Chronicles chapter 17, verses 8 through 14. God says to David, I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take away my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, David, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, that in the new heavens and the new earth, Christ will reign over his people, reign over the nations, reign over all things, having brought all things in subjection under his feet, and reconciling all things to himself. What was promised about 1,050 years prior to Mary hearing these words, we see fulfilled in her. Indeed, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. And to that we pray, Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. What wonderful news! What a glorious message! What can one say to such a proclamation? Let us return for a moment to that scene where Gabriel stood before the throne of his God to receive his mission. One can only speculate the reaction of the messenger when, when he truly understood that the one from whom the message came was also the one who would enter into the womb of the young girl that the messenger, to whom the messenger would go. What wonder is found here in the simple words of John? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Did Gabriel question this, or did he fall on his face flat and worship his king? Or did he just go and accomplish the task given? We, we have no clue this side of heaven, but I eagerly long to ask him one day. But we continue back to our text in Luke, verse 34. And Mary said to the angel... How will this be since I am a virgin? Mary asks a question of the heavenly messenger. Now keep in mind, this is a risky thing to do. It didn't go so well for Zechariah, did it? He spent nine months unable to speak, unable to talk. But note that Mary asks a very different question from her relative. Zechariah in verse 18 asks how shall I know this for I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Mary on the other hand asks how will this be since I am a virgin. Do you see the distinction there? The one is demanding proof, demanding a sign so that he might actually trust what the angel says while the other is merely asking for an explanation of how it will happen. The first comes from a, a disposition of doubt and and questioning and, and requiring proof. The other comes from a position of trusting and asking for more information. Zechariah requires personal and selfish proof that Gabriel was telling the truth. Mary merely asked to know how it would happen. Zechariah doubted and demanded a sign. Mary trusted the message and wanted more explanation. And we now move into the third part of this angelic exchange, the the angel's answer and Mary's resolve. Verse 35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The, The biology here remains a mystery to us, and I think will always remain a mystery to us. But two things we must hold here. First, is that Jesus' biological father was not Joseph or any other man. That is, Mary did not have any sexual relationships with any man prior to conceiving Jesus. And the second thing that we must hold is that the Holy Spirit was the means by which Jesus was conceived. This makes Jesus, unlike any other human being in the world, fully God and fully man. We must hold to the truth that he was born of a virgin, and not by means of natural conception. We must hold to this virgin birth. Because if Christ was born in the line of Adam, if his father was a descendant of Adam, then he would, of consequence, be born under the sin of Adam. And therefore, by nature, he would be sinful, and therefore he could not be our holy, perfect, and spotless sacrifice. What is more, we must hold that the Holy Spirit is the one by which Jesus was conceived, because it is only by the Holy Spirit that God could become man. How this all works, we do not know, nor will we ever know the true depth of the detail of this. But we can take comfort and confidence in the fact that our Heavenly Father knows exactly how this worked. As does the Son, as does the Spirit. And that we can trust them that their work is true and good and perfect. Note the result of the Holy Spirit's work according to the angel. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. That is, without a sin nature. Perfect from conception and thus able to be a Savior of the world. Unlike all of our children, this one was perfect. Mothers, can you imagine a child who does not cry out of anger? Can you imagine a baby who only cries when he is truly hungry or truly uncomfortable? Can you imagine a child growing up who is in no way defiant, but completely submissive to your authority? Can you imagine a child that is perfect in all that he does, Is a completely foreign concept to us, is it not? We are all too accustomed to, to the infant who you can tell is angry about his life circumstance, even though he has not much to be angry about. One pastor once said, life is hard, it gets harder and then you die. But each moment of our lives seems like the end of the world when it's coming upon us, does it not? And how much truer in an infant who has a dirty diaper. The world is coming to an end, and there is anger and hatred in that child. But not so with Christ. Not so with our Savior. He was an infant that did indeed cry, but never with anger, never with hatred, but only to let his mother know that he needed help. This is a child unlike any child that we have ever known or could experience in this world. What wonderful news. How delightful is this proclamation that this child would be born holy and be called holy. The angel continues in verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. Note the grace of this messenger of God. He not only gives Mary an explanation of what is to happen, but he also gives her a second proof in her cousin Elizabeth. Far from the punishment of speechlessness, she receives what Zechariah wanted so much. Proof and assurance. He continues with one of the most comforting verses in all Scripture. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. It may well be that this morning this is the verse that you needed to hear. It may be that you are walking through a struggle that seems like it will never end or couldn't possibly be what God wants for your life. It may be that you have sunk into the depths of personal sin and it seems to be overwhelming. Or perhaps the season of year is particularly painful and particularly difficult, a season of difficult memories season of times that are since past. But here's the good news of this promise, brothers and sisters. This baby did not stay a child, for he grew in stature before the Lord. He lived a perfect life under the sun, a perfect life under the law of his father. He walked through the same struggles that you are walking through, We see here that Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be beat down, to be cursed, to be abandoned. We see our savior knows what it's like to be tempted by sin. And in fact, he's been tempted by sin far more than any of us could ever dream of. And yet he stood firm. He he knows what it's like to live life under the sun. He knows the hurt of loneliness. He knows what it was like to have all of his closest and dearest friends desert him in his hour of greatest need. He knew seasons of sorrow and seasons of pain. He knows what our life is like. And he cares for us. Indeed, we even see in scripture that he intercedes for us. He is seated at the right hand of the Father on high, making intercession for his saints. And even more still, he has sent his Spirit to dwell within us, to to help us, to to illumine our hearts, to to draw us to the good deeds that God set before the foundation of the world that we should walk in, to to comfort us in our affliction, to, to strengthen us in our times of need. He has not left you alone, brother or sister. He cares for you. Nothing is impossible with our God. And indeed, we have a God who has, has flipped everything upside down, as it were, because we see that in our sorrows, he, he is most magnified and glorified. We see that in our pain and in our, in our sufferings, that, that he, he is glorified through us and, and builds us up in our character and in our trust and in our, in, in our dependence upon our dear Savior. Take comfort, weary soul, for Christ is for you and not against you. Finally, we come to our last verse of this passage. Verse 38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We see Mary's true heart here. This is no arrogant girl who always dreamed of bearing the Messiah of God. Did you know that that was a common occurrence for uh, Jewish girls of this time? That they always wanted and hoped and dreamed that they would be the one that the Messiah would come from? They, They would have competitions for righteousness and holiness so that God might look down upon them and say, You know what? You are the womb in which I shall bring forth my Messiah. But not so from this girl. No, she was not arrogant. She was not competing with her friends. She was not one who always dreamed of bearing the Messiah of God. This was no ignorant child who let the waves of life carry her like a rudderless ship. This was no secular Jew who would do anything at any cost to improve her station in life. No, Mary was a servant of God, a servant of the Most High, just as surely as that angel before her. She submitted herself to God's word. She desired to glorify God. She loved him and worshipped him and served him. This is one who submitted herself fully to the will of God, come what may. Take a moment to think about how momentous this decision was in her life. Surely she would be treated as a harlot in her local town. One of loose moral character. One who got pregnant out of wedlock. Her fiancé would probably leave her in disgrace from all she knew. Her father would be ashamed of her and could publicly disown her. She could be put out of the synagogues and become a pariah in her community, a loose woman they would see her as. Yet knowing this difficulty awaited her, she served her God. Knowing the pain and strife that would come, she still said, Let it be to me according to your word. May we have the same response in similar situations. May we gladly bear the shame and disgrace for the sake of the honor of our Savior. May we be like Mary in this small way that we see the suffering and choose to worship even still. We also see in Mary the sustaining grace of God. Not only was she a woman in whom God set his affections and and gave grace to, but God continued to give her grace. In a way, there was no chance, well, in a true way, there was no chance that Mary would have a miscarriage on this pregnancy. There was no way that her life would be endangered in the care for God's Messiah. God sustained her through the scorn. He sustained her through the isolation. He helped her all throughout this. Mary knew that if God were for her, who could be against her? Returning to that lovely little book, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever, towards the end, there's a touching scene. The author writes, Everyone sang Silent Night, including the audience. This is after the pageant is over. We sang all the verses, too. And when we got to Son of God... Loves pure light. I happened to look at Imogene, who is the meanest of them all. I happened to look at Imogene and I, I almost dropped my hymn book on a baby angel. Everyone had been waiting all this time for the Herdmans to do something absolutely unexpected, and sure enough, that is what was happened. What happened? Imogene Herdman was crying. In the candlelight her face was all shiny with tears. And she didn't even bother to wipe them away. She just sat there, awful old Imogene in her crookedy veil, crying and crying and crying. Is this not a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel's pure light dawning upon the hardened heart of a sinner? Is this not something that we can reflect on and delight in when we are? confronted by the pure grace of god in our lives the sustaining grace the saving grace reflect upon it delight in it and rejoice in it as we continue through this wonderful season celebrating the word made flesh and dwelling among us may we ever hear with fresh ears and see with new eyes the wonder of emmanuel god with us let us pray Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you chose to use the weakest, the smallest, the most insignificant in this world to accomplish your great and mighty ends. We thank you, Lord, that you chose a girl from Nazareth and not some uh, royal princess from a royal city. We thank you, Lord, that you use the common things to make plain your power and your glory. Lord, we thank you that you chose the shameful things in this world. The cross, the most wicked and evil torment humanity has devised. You chose that to save us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for his perfect life from beginning to end. We thank you for his active obedience where he actively obeyed and followed every single one of your commandments. And we thank you for his passive obedience where he gladly and willingly for the joy set before him endured the pain of the cross and the suffering of the weight of your wrath against our sins. Lord, help us to delight in and to rejoice in his work for us. Lord, we thank you for this church as well. Lord, we thank you for the ability to gather together as fellow believers. We thank you for the indescribable joy that it is to come before you and to worship you together in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray that this church would continue to remain firm and steadfast in the preaching of your gospel. Lord, we pray that you might be magnified and glorified through the continuing presence of Mount Rose in Reno, Nevada, and that the fame of your name would spread to a dark world and that joy would dawn upon them. Help us, Lord, to remain faithful and true to your word. Lord, we pray for uh, all the different churches within our presbytery as well. Lord, we lift up uh, the, the church in Battle Mountain, a place where there should be no Presbyterian church, and yet by your grace there is one. And we thank you and delight in that wondrous fact. Lord, we pray that uh, you would be well pleased to continue to grow the, the Bible study, the, the small group that has been established in Elko, and that if it would please you, Lord, that it would soon become a mission work and, and hopefully a particularized church. Lord, we pray that your, your church would grow in this dark region of the world through the advancement of your gospel and that many souls would be saved. Lord, we also thank you for your... Uh, sustaining grace lord we do lift up those who are hurting in our midst lord we thank you for harry reed and and for the uh the uh, adjacent ministry that he's had in our midst and and the joy that he has brought uh, to our fellowships over the years And, and lord we pray that you would give the doctors wisdom and guidance in in this hour of his need lord we do pray that he would that the, the surgery that occurred this morning would have its good effect and that he would be able to begin recovering uh, from this awful infection that he has. Lord, we do pray that you would spare his life and bring him recovery um, and that you would bring comfort and hope to his children and that, uh, that you would be magnified and glorified even through this situation. Lord, we also lift up to you Elaine's Uncle Richard and and the aggressive cancer that uh, he has been diagnosed with. Lord, we pray that the medicines that the doctors have prescribed would, would also have a good effect upon the cancer and that it would be beaten down and uh, that he would be able to recover. And if not, Lord, we pray that he would put his trust in you and, and hope and delight in you. Lord, we also uh, pray for Judy and Larry uh, that uh, um, with uh, Judy's nosebleed this morning that uh, she would be okay and uh, that they would be able to join us again next week Lord we lift up all those who are ailing and um, weakening in, in this congregation Lord I do pray that as our bodies fail as our aches and pains grow more and more that it would provoke in us, that it would help us to see the glory of heaven that awaits for us when these earthen vessels will be no more and that we might glorify you uh, with resurrection bodies and uh, be truly complete. But in the meantime, Lord, I pray that we would be effective ministers of your gospel, that we would bring your gospel to those who have not heard it, That we would comfort one another with your gospel in times when they need it. And to remind one another of your wondrous gospel and rejoice in it. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you have done. And it's in your wondrous, holy, precious name that we pray. Amen. If you would please stand for our closing hymn. Hymn number three.